Well, you're all still here. You're, you're making statements with your very presence. So I've been honored to be present in the meetings that we've had with, with many of you. And, um, and oftentimes I can feel the tears start to well up in my eyes and hearing and witnessing your, your courage your capacity to kind of stick your nose in your business and and work it the best that you're able. So um, just want to honor you again. It's a pleasure to be on this journey with all of you, the whole crew. So tonight I want to speak about equanimity. It's one of the four Brahma Viharas. And the Brahma Viharas are often translated as the divine abodes. And the other three are loving kindness, sometimes called loving friendliness, compassion, and sympathetic joy. And you'll see them also referred to as the immeasurables. I've gotten to prefer calling them the beautiful emotions. They're this set of lovely attitudes and energies of heart-mind that reach outward. They embrace, they connect to all of creation. In the energies of love, of compassion, of taking joy in the good fortune of others. And in those energies, and we're talking about equanimity here, but those energies that help maintain balance and calm in the midst of everything. So these Brahma Viharas are full-on relational. It's a misnomer when people think about meditation as some kind of isolationist navel-gazing. That's really not what's happening. It's completely relational. Relational in the sense that we are, we are endeavoring to befriend ourselves and befriend all of life. This uh, short piece from Nyanapanika Tara, who is a legendary scholar monk, and he says this about the, about the Brahma Viharas. These four attitudes are said to be excellent or sublime because they are the right or, or ideal way of conduct towards living beings. They provide, in fact, the answer to all situations arising from social contact. They are the great removers of tension, the great peacemakers in social conflict, and the great healers of wounds suffered in the struggle of existence. They level social barriers, build harmonious communities, awaken slumbering magnanimity long forgotten, revive joy and hope long abandoned, and promote human community against the forces of egotism. No small measure, these Brahma Viharas, worthy of our complete attention devotion even. 
I mean, what could be more important than these energies in this troubled world, really? So, so tonight I want to look at just one of these four, and that's equanimity. Equi equanimity, there's a lot of ways to define it, and I'll touch into many of them, but it's the stability of mind that allows you to be present with an open heart no matter how wonderful or how difficult the conditions are. It's a, it's a balance regardless of conditions. It's said that the, these this boundless qualities of these beautiful emotions um, uh, of loving kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy stem from equanimity. That equanimity is the glue that holds those three together. It's open-hearted. It's ceaselessly compassionate. It's the, it's the ground for wisdom, for freedom. It's the protector of compassion and love. The Buddha described um, a mind filled with equanimity as abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. There's a story. This story purportedly took place in China in the 1700s. So a young girl in, the, in this village got pregnant. And that happens a lot all over the world. Um, that's how there's seven billion of us. But her angry parents wanted to know who the father was, okay? And she was resistant to confess, but eventually she finally pointed to Hakuin, the head abbot in the monastery, as the father. The family was in an uproar. Not only the immediate family, the whole extended family marched to the monastery and expressed their anger. What had you done? You know? you know, outlined the, the accusation. And Hakuin, his comment was, is that so? So when the child was born, the family again to the monastery. And this by this time, by the time the child was born, the, the abbot, the whole monastery was like a pariah. They were then hardly receiving any support whatsoever. Most of the village had turned against him. So they brought the child to Hakuin, to the monastery, and said, here, your responsibility. Take this baby. You know? Hakuin's calm response, you know, is that so? And he took the child. And for many, many months, cared lovingly for this child. And at some point, this this young woman who was she couldn't just she couldn't stand herself anymore she had to confess the truth and so she told her parents that the father of the child was this young man in the village who she was having a relationship with the family was in shock they go back up to the monastery they apologize profusely Hakuin's response, 
Is that so? They asked for the baby, handed over the baby. So Hakoin, you know, demonstrated a what you might say a high level of refined equanimity. He was steady, he was even, he was compassionate, took that baby, opened his heart, cared. I mean, he demonstrated an, an, an astounding evenness in the face of strong hostility and blame. You can feel that there's a, a clean power in equanimity like this. I mean, it feels heroic without any ego push to it. There's a strength there. And each of you had moments in your life where things turned on you, things got intense, particularly challenging, and something came over you and you just said, I can handle this. I can deal with it. I can be with this. And you move through it with a reasonably calm acceptance of what what it was. And from that, that energetic of calm balance, your thoughts, your words, your actions were more on point. They're more skillful. That's equanimity. That's your Hakuin capacity. Okay? I mean, sometimes in life, the conditions get so challenging it's like all the escape hatches, all the, our normal escape hatches get closed off. And we don't have any choice but to surrender to what is, to stop struggling and let go. You know, but sometimes those difficult conditions can create an opening for the activation of equanimity. Many years ago, I can remember I was... Um, on a camping odyssey uh, at my, with my son, who at that point was 11 years old. And we had taken a couple months, and we were hiking and camping in different places. That's what we were doing. It was a beautiful experience. And um, we were near Aspen. Behind, behind Aspen is the Maroon Bells Wilderness Area. And we were back there. And we were, we'd been in there for about a week, and we were about... 12 to 15 miles from the nearest road. We were at a high mountain lake. I forget the name of the lake. It was still, it was late summer, but there was still snow and there there was part of the lake was a little bit frozen. And and it was, it had been raining for a couple of days. So we're sitting in the tent together and we're playing cards and we're reading and we're trying not to go stir crazy, but it's pouring rain. There's not nothing we wanted to do and it's a cold rain. So, I can remember it was a Sunday evening and it's still, still daylight and he starts complaining. He's got this terrible pain in his side. And I used to be an EMT, so I, I kind of remember the stuff. And that pain was getting worse. And then he was doubled over. And I palpate the right side uh, of his belly and I'm thinking, oh my God, appendicitis. What am I going to do? He's too big for me to carry him out of here. So I'm thinking, I've got to make a run for it and get some help. It's the, it's the only thing I can do. Got about an hour and a half of sunlight. And so I didn't want to leave him alone. And on the other side of the lake were a couple of college kids camping. So, and they were the only ones there, the, the, the two tents, my, ours and theirs. So I went over there and I said, look, I need you to move your tent 
next to my son. He may need comforting. I'm going for help. So they took down their tent in the rain and moved it. And I asked him, I said, well, I don't have a flashlight. Do you have a flashlight? He said, no. You know, part of the camping thing is, oh, you're, you get it so together, you never need a flashlight. It's just extra weight. You do all your work before it's dark, blah, blah, blah. That's stupid. <laughs> so I was freaked. And I started running. I said goodbye to my son, and I started running. I had about an hour and a half of daylight. And it was 15, hours, 15 miles back to where the car was parked. But I knew it was less to go forward and get out in another area. And I thought, well, that's the way I need to go. 12 miles, something like that. So I started running in that direction. And for the first hour, hour and a half, okay, I'm going downhill, chugging along. And then it got pitch dark, slowly. And although I'd read those Don Juan books about kind of running in the blind, you know, <laughs> it wasn't working. I'd get, to the end of a, I'd get to the end of a switchback, and I was slowing down. I'd, kinda, I'd have to run into some bushes and like, okay, now it must turn. Then I'd feel where it turned, and I'd go. Feel, and eventually, I, I fell down a little embankment. Didn't get hurt bad or anything. Scratched up, slight twisted ankle. Kind of gathered myself, found my way back up to the trail. And it's pouring rain the whole time. And so I'm working my way down. And finally, I take a big tumble. And then I somehow got turned around. Uh, and I headed off the wrong direction. I couldn't find the trail. And I'm kind of going, and there's no trail. You know? And at that point, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of my son up there. Does he have a burst appendix? You know? And what was I to do? You know? And so I'm kind of crawling through the bushes, and I'm, my mind is racing terribly. I'm emotionally distraught. I'm close to exhaustion at this point. So hours have gone by. And I kept stumbling again and again. I couldn't see. There was no trail. And so I can remember just stopping the frantic thrashing and just lying there and thinking. You know, and then I started muttering out loud, you know, to I don't know who to, you know, uh, I can't do this. I can't do this. I give up. And I just laid there. And in that moment, the struggle kind of stopped, or it did stop. There was some kind of release. There was a surrender. You know. The situation was out of my hands at this point. I knew that I would pull myself together and expend whatever energy I had left, but Conditions were going to take their course. That was the deal. But in that moment, it was like the mind had broken open in some way. The thrashing around stopped. There was no more struggle. So I, I just laid there for, for some moments, 
kind of internally gathering myself. The mind had slowed down. Perception was kind of up now and uncluttered by the racing mind. And I, and I heard what sounded like a stream. And of course, you know, if you're in the mountains, if you can get to a stream, it's going to lead you out. So I'm listening, and it's still raining, and it sounds like a stream. So I start moving in that direction. Sure enough, it was a stream. Still no trail. And so I'm moving along the boulders and the bushes along the side of the stream, but I'm feeling, I've got a plan. I'm a little dinged up. I'm exhausted, but I'm, I've got a plan. I'm going to get out. And so probably went a couple hundred yards or more along the stream, slowly. And then I saw on the other side of the stream a light. And there was some fools that were tenting. You know, it was, they probably got up there, going to do a weekend or whatever. And there they were in the rain, probably for two days, just like I was. And so I started yelling across this stream, which was pretty swollen. And, and this guy comes out and goes, what? I'm saying, well, I need to, I need to get across. Where's the trail? You know, and, Oh, he said, oh, yeah, okay, you need to come over here. And I'm looking at this stream, I can't. And he said, well, go down, just go in that direction. You know, he's shouting, there's a log, there's a log. So I get down, there's a log, and I fell in and totally soaked again. I'm not hurt or anything, just dinged up. I finally climb out, and these people helped me. They gave me their canteen of water. They gave me a flashlight. They didn't have a car. Somebody dropped them off like on Thursday or something, and they were stuck up there in the rain, and they weren't going to be picked up until the next morning. So, but I have a flashlight. I got, I'm headed downhill, and I'm feeling okay. So I get, I get down to this parking lot, and by this time, it's after midnight. There's one car in the parking lot. The windows are steamed up. I'm thinking, <laughs> it could be anything, but I'm going to interrupt it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I go there and I'm beating on the windows and I've been in the woods for like a week I got this beard there's mud there's blood you know and it's like <laughs> and this young woman she rolls down the window and she says what's going on and I also had this thought God I hope my daughter doesn't act like this you know and I said, well, you know, my son's up there. He may have appendicitis. I need to get help. She says, well, climb in. So I get in the car. We drive further down the mountain. There happens to be this, a light on up in a house. And I don't know what time it is, but it's 1 o'clock or 12.30, 1 o'clock. So we drive up there, knock on the door. This guy comes to the door. He's fully clothed. He's not in his pajamas. And I tell him what's happened. And he says, well, I'm with Mountain Rescue. And I was staying up late. I was going over the weather. I have to, uh, tomorrow morning, I, I'm, I'm going to fly my daughter to college. You know, she starts in college. I'm going to fly her somewhere. He had a plane. So he gets on the phone, calls the sheriff, saying, we need two walkie-talkies up here. You know, we need one and we need a backup. Then <clears throat> he calls Durango, where they have a helicopter, where they have the helicopters, and says, Get one on standby. They're not going to fly at night. They're not going to fly in that weather. No way. And so takes my clothes, puts it in the dryer, you know, while the sheriff's coming over, tape up my ankles, look at the, look at the other bruises. And by the time the sheriff gets here, we're ready to walk up that mountain. You know, we've got lights. We've got walkie-talkies. And so we're walking the rest of the night. 
And finally, at dawn, we get to the place where we are. It was hard for me to keep up for him. He was like a mountain goat, this guy. And I was a little tired. And so we get there and we go over to the tent, open the flap of the tent, here's my son all smiling. He said, well, Dad, I, I just had to go to the bathroom really bad. <laughs> so, <laughs> what, and I didn't think of it. We had been sitting in that tent for two days eating gorp. <laughs> you know, who can digest all that stuff? But anyway, so... We found a place and we called Durango and said, no, 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 no. That still cost me $1,500 to gas those babies up. But um, I was really happy for that. And then we walked, turned around, we walked back down the mountain. So for me, it was about 40 miles in, <laughs> in a day. And we got a motel room and I got this pile of ice cream and cookies, turned on that TV, <laughs> and we watched TV for the next day and a half. And, Ate junk, you know, so. But in those conditions, somehow equanimity got activated. All, all my options were closed. And that led to a full surrender. And then that kind of supported some calm, some spaciousness, some, some room to operate in that situation. You know, and when I think back on it, I think it was kind of like a, a Rinzai Zen experience. And if you know anything about Rinzai Zen, there's, there's two characteristics that are kind of most known and outstanding. One is the koan, and the other is the encouragement stick, you know. So the, the koan is this question, riddle if you will, that is very challenging, that tangles the mind up, it kind of absolutely befuddling, and you work on it for a period of time. And um, so that's, that's the koan. But your mind is like, you just, you know, and eventually your mind breaks open. You let go, you release this experience out of surrender the clarity to then kind of understand that question on the deepest level and then respond. And the other part is the encouragement stick. It's called, you know, so there's this stick. And in a sashin, in a, a rinzai uh, sashin, you don't get very much sleep. You have to sit absolutely still, upright, perfect posture, not moving, hours on end, not sleeping, and when you need encouragement, you bow to the master or the senior student, and they will strike you with the stick in a place on your shoulder to give you that alertness. Or they will discover you sleeping, slumping, and then bow to you, which is kind of like asking you, would you like the encouragement stick? You know, and it's all done in a in a actually a a kind of beautiful way, but it's a martial thing. So so here on this in this situation, my mind broke, my body broke as it 
Kim in Rinzai. You're just sitting, you're sitting, and there's pain, and there's pain, and you're trying to stay awake, and there's pain. And then eventually you just release. You're still sitting, but you've released the struggle. And so at times, that can happen. And it did in that little camping trip. So... Equanimity is interesting. It has beautiful facets for us to ponder over the years. And it's, it's, it has the wisdom of knowing that trying to cling to and hold on to everything we like or push away everything that's unpleasant only causes more suffering. It has a real wisdom element to it. Equanimity certainly knows there's an unpleasantness in the world and there's a lot of it. And the, the sane approach to that unpleasantness is we can't set all the conditions in our life the way we want it. We can't set them up to deliver constant pleasure, you know, gain, or praise. Another way to look at equanimity is it's the Radical non-interference with the flow of our senses. The radical non-interference with the flow of our senses. It's allowing it all to arise and pass. Feeling everything but not pushing at it, grasping at it. It's the difference between kind of like this, kind of like ah, gripping or pushing, and this. Equanimity is balance. Its characteristic is to relax the mind before it falls into one extreme or another. This is a quote from Joseph Campbell. He's, and here he's speaking to a group of educators. The first step to the knowledge of the wonder and mystery of life is the recognition of the monstrous nature of the earthly human realm as well as its glory. The realization that this is just how it is and that it cannot and will not be changed. Those who think they know how the universe could have been had they created it, without pain, without sorrow, without time, without death, are unfit for illumination. So if you really want to help this world, and he is speaking to teachers, if you really want to help this world, what you will have to teach is how to live in it. And that no one can do who has not themselves learned how to live in the joyful sorrow and sorrowful joy of the knowledge of life as it is. And the, the Taoist talk of the thousand joys and the thousand sorrows that make up a life. And this from the Buddha. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute are the eight worldly winds. They ceaselessly change. As a mountain is unshaken by the wind, so the heart of a wise person is unmoved by all the changes on the earth. 
and from Dolly Parton. <laughs> if you want the rainbow, you got to put up with the rain. Gotta love them. Another story. Poor old farmer. He's got a teenage son and a horse. They work this little plot. You know. The horse runs away. A bunch of neighbors come over. Oh, poor you. You know, the kind of condolences. Kind of. And uh, so the old man, who's kind of known to be a little different, says to him, well... You know, and they're saying, oh, this is so terrible, terrible. He says, well, maybe, but who knows? It could be good, it could be bad. A few days later, the horse comes back. Has two other horses with him. These wild horses follow it back. You know, his neighbors, oh, what good luck, what good fortune. This is just so fantastic for you. The guy says, well, maybe, who knows? It could be good, it could be bad. The neighbors left again, thinking, what is it with this guy? You know? So after you know, a few days, a week goes by, son is trying to tame one of these wild horses, gets thrown and breaks his leg. The neighbors, oh, so sorry. You lost your son. You know, and he's going to be unable to help you work in the field for a long time. Same response. Maybe it's bad, maybe not. Could be good, could be bad. A few days after he breaks his leg, the army comes through, and every young man in the village was taken to fight in the army. It was a dangerous mission. Most of them weren't going to come back. They didn't take the, fa the farmer's son. He had a broken leg. So... The sto that story I find both timely and timeless. We just don't know. I mean, when you think about today's polemics, the polarization that's going in, not just our culture, but in a lot of places, you know, how easy it is to slip into a self-righteous position where you definitely know the answer. Okay? <laughs> We've all done it. But the real truth is we only know the tiniest sliver of all the causes and conditions that are in play in any particular situation. Now, of course, we've got to make decisions as caring citizens. We need to act on those choices. And sometimes with great energy and vigor. But where I've come to in my advancing age, is ultimately, I really don't know. I mean, what are the future results? Who can predict the future results of a situation that may be occurring that is causing harm in various forms? Sometimes, periods of great pain precede great openings. Sometimes, Great trials bring out the best of human potential. Could we be living in one of those times in history? And on the other time, and, and on the other hand, sometimes conditions seem relatively okay. 
But there's, a, there's an undercurrent, slow, imperceptible almost, of a continuation and deepening of forms of exploitation, inequality, the, the accumulation of resources by the few. It's all carried off under the soft talk of improving the lot of everyone. But really what's going on is something different. Historians have almost never been able to predict the future. They're great at analyzing the past. You know, and I visit, I had a number of years ago now, to Israel. I loved my visit to Israel. But I especially remained imp- uh, remain impressed by my visit to Tel Megiddo, which is this fantastic archaeological site that's actually been worked on probably for almost 100 years now. I think they started in the 30s. And you'll see a team of archaeologists from all different countries working there. Nobody lives in that area right now, but there was, there's water, and it was a crossroads, a great crossroads of trade. And there's been civilizations there up until now for 10,000 years. And they've uncovered tw- now 26 different civilizations on top of one another. And I always I like to think, and it was fun kind of sitting there with the archaeologists. They're just sitting under their shade things they put up and doing their little brushes and stuff. But thinking, well, what were these people thinking in all these civilizations? Did they think they kind of had it? You know, they had it together. They were going to keep going, and this is all going to be cool, and they were just going to refine it a little bit and get it all right. I don't know. So we've got to make choices as citizens and stand up for what seems appropriate. But the, the stance that I have now is so humble that I know so little of all the conditions and variables at play. You know, I've got to act, you know, and I do. But I realize it's just my best guess. It really is. I could be very wrong. I just don't know. And what I found in that, that position, which has kind of gotten more and more internalized, with that, with that position of equanimity like that, that humble stance of really believing, I don't know. It feels like there's been a burden put down. You know, all that self-righteousness is hard to carry. It's a weight. You know, you're defending it all the time. You're fighting in every situation. So... Let's do a little reflection together on equanimity, see if we can get a, get a taste of it for, for a few minutes. So come into your familiar position and take some moments and to re-experience this aliveness. Just reflect for a moment. Of a mind that has balance and equanimity. And sense what a gift it would be 
to bring that peaceful heart and mind to the world around you, to your family, to your community, this country, or any country. Just consider that. Feel what a, what a gift would, that would be. What that relational field would be like if you were presenting with a heart, a mind that was balanced, peaceful. And so I'm going to say some phrases and just kind of see if you can connect with them. Breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I calm my mind. May I be balanced. May I be at peace. Breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I calm my mind. May I be balanced. May I be at peace. Breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I calm my mind. May I be balanced. May I be at peace. And just repeat those once silently to yourself. See if you can feel into it. And invite that calm to spread or open into a spacious equanimity. Acknowledging, just like in Tel Megiddo in Israel, the comings and goings of everything. All created things arise and pass away. Today's joys turn to tomorrow's sorrows and vice versa. There are pleasant events, painful events. People, buildings, animals, nations, whole civilizations, they come and they go. Let yourself just rest in the midst of that movement, that bubbling change of nature. And consider these phrases. Allow the words to roll through. May I learn to see the arising and passing of all things with equanimity and balance. May I be open and balanced and peaceful. May I learn to see the arising and passing of all things with equanimity and balance. May I be open and balanced and peaceful. Now consider that silently one time.
And now bring to mind and visualize a loved one. Bring their image forward if you can or a felt sense of them. And as I say these phrases, allow the sensibility of these phrases to move from you to that loved one. May you learn to see the arising and passing of all things with equanimity and balance. May you be open, balanced, and at peace. May you learn to see the arising and passing of all things with equanimity and balance. May you be open, balanced, and at peace. And one more time, extending to that loved one your wishes for their equanimity. And now, either staying with this loved one or choosing another who may be having some difficulties, maybe suffering in one way or another. And in some sense, we are all the heirs to our actions. We've heard it before. We reap what we sow. Beings receive the fruits of their actions. Lives arise and pass away. Mostly according to the deeds created by the individuals. And we can deeply care for them. But in the end, we can't act for them. We can't let go for them. We can't love for them. And as you visualize this person who may be in in some level of suffering, these phrases, Your happiness and suffering depend on your actions and not on my wishes for you. May you rest with a peaceful heart. May you find balance and peace. May you have compassion and equanimity with all the events of the world. Extending again to this being, Your happiness and suffering depend on your actions and not on my wishes for you. May you rest with a peaceful heart. May you find balance and peace. May you have compassion and equanimity with all the events of the world.
I hope you got a little flavor from that practice. A good portion of it was courtesy of Jack Cornfield, and you can make up your own version. You can customize any of these practices that really touch you. There are near enemies of equanimity that need to be mentioned and understood. Now, a near enemy uh, looks like the quality, but it can be deceiving. And in, in terms of equanimity, it's the broad category of indifference. There's a whole continu continuum of, of indifference. On one end, it's easy to identify. It's the, I don't care about it. That's obvious, or I hate it. I don't care, I hate it. That's one end. But it gets a little more subtle and can masquerade as equanimity. So, just settle back, close your eyes, and I'm going to read these words that can masquerade as equanimity. And I want you to see if you can feel into why it's not. Escapism. Denial. Delusion. Complacency. Can you see how that's not equanimity? Resignation. How about acquiescence to oppression? Acquiescence to oppression. Can you see how that's not equanimity? Numbness. Moral insensitivity. Intellectual aloofness. Can you feel the kind of hardness in these terms? Grasping. Where is the balance in grasping? Cynicism. Fear. And privilege. Okay, near enemies. Now you might think, fear, what are you talking about? But really, if fear is undetected, you know, if it's below the line, so to speak, we're using this line a lot, it's a great metaphor, and you reflexively turn away from a situation, you may think that you have balance, calm, that there's equanimity. But if you look a little deeper, and discover, oh, there's fear. You've turned away. It's natural. It happens to all of us. And the other one, privilege. What's that about? You know. Point being here is that when the energy of privilege exists, you can easily be blind to the suffering of others. 
is that unconscious bias, the conceit, the feeling of being better than. And it, it rides above and below that line. You know? you're, you're riding above everything. Not meaning that you're conscious, but you're just riding above everything. And when that energy is, is active, you're just easily detached from the suffering of others. You're oblivious to the suffering of others. It's a false equanimity because connection is missing. Now, there are some consciousness movements afoot which are great in some circles where people are examining privilege, white privilege, other types of privilege, class privilege, etc. That's a good thing. It's a step to discover privilege in all its guises and how it removes, detaches us from actually feeling the suffering of others. Compassion is part of equanimity. It has to be. If it's not there, it's something else. We all know people that are kind of come across, well, they're so cooled out, and oh, yeah, they have cancer. Well, it's their karma, whatever. Well, that's cold. That's not equanimity. That's not balance. You know? And other people are very compassionate, and they're just kind of lost, you know, in the kind of the movement of the heart, and there's no balance there either. They get burned out easily. And for me, I always do the heart test. If I have a question about whether I'm equanimous in a particular situation, it's like, okay, where's the heart? If it's not open, then it's something else. I've slipped into one of these near enemies. And sometimes we have to. We're just so, it's just so hard. You know, so we, we kind of shut it down temporarily. As practitioners, that's temporarily. Because our job as a contemplative artist is to keep coming back, keep cultivating that heart you know, over and over. I mean, equanimity is the capacity, this capacity to be in touch with suffering directly and not be swept away by it. That's the it. Equanimity is that strong back that supports the soft front of compassion. They're interdependent energies, that compassion and equanimity. But they're the foundation for dealing with suffering, your own, and suffering wherever you find it. Equanimity, when it's starting to mature, it allows you that, that kind of radiant, calm peace and the trust that can receive the world in, in all its messiness and at the same time makes it possible for you to let go of the world. It's that delicious paradox. 
this um, couple of short poems from Basho, that 7th century, 17th century Zen poet. See if you can feel the equanimity in these. Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. You know, that's a kind of attitude. <laughs> you can just picture him laying down in some barn somewhere. Oh. Okay. And here's one. See if you see if you can lean in and live into this one. Maybe you're already already there. He says, since my house burned down. I have a better view of the rising moon. Are you there yet? <laughs> so, so as you traverse through this life, I mean, you care about all. You care about the well-being of everybody you love. You and you want to alleviate that pain and suffering the best that you can. You care about what's happening in the larger world. You know the exploitation, the racism, the war the degradation of this beautiful planet, the whole catastrophe. Caring is a natural human response. And sometimes they're all covered over by fear and anxiety and whatever, but it's there. You know, how do we hold all this, the personal, the global? You know? How can you hold it without succumbing to burnout and all those little things insidious forms of indifference that can creep in and grab us. Without running away, turning away. You know, the answer is in this cultivation of equanimity. It's that exquisite balance that allows you to touch more deeply into this world without burning out, freaking out. invites you to live life at the very deepest, to connect more and more deeply, to open to the suffering of yours and others. From Thich Nhat Hanh, he wrote this little, tiny little poem during the Vietnam War. Flare bombs boom on the dark sky. A child claps his hand and laughs. I hear the sound of guns and laughter dies. But the witness remains. So this balance of the spiritual practice is delicate. You know, to care deeply and extend that compassion over and over again, but not tumble into identification and and lose yourself. Equanimity does support that heart staying open a little more and a little more in difficult situations. And it can sh- equanimity can show the way to appropriate action. It's from that balance that you can t- discern more skillfully when to act and how to act. And just as importantly, when not to act. You know, at its foundation, equanimity is kind of letting go over and over and over and over. I've had some discussion with some people that are parents. And, you know, as parents, you get to practice equanimity a lot. You know, all the time. 
And especially as children get over, get older, it requires more and more of letting go. It's just part of the nature of things. My daughter was especially strong-willed from birth. It's just how she landed. You know, and I had to learn maybe a little earlier on that my role was shrinking. I could give my input and I had to set some boundaries. But those boundaries were always a matter of dispute. It was like a demilitarized zone. <laughs> and a lot of you know what I mean. And as she grew, as she grew older, I had to like extend, allow her boundaries to ex, extend or it would go nuclear. But now she's grown, so my role is really simplified. I offer love and support. I offer counsel only when asked. You know? I'm always wishing her the best. And I know that she, like everybody else, everybody who's ever walked this earth, is going to suffer in their own way. They're going to kind of develop their own flavor of suffering. I'm guaranteed she's going to make some decisions that will result in very painful circumstances. And no one gets to avoid it. We wish our children could avoid it. It doesn't happen. So that's the wise edge, that caring and allowing. Caring and accepting. Caring and taking your hands off the controls when it's appropriate. When you can recognize the, the moments where equanimity is needed. If you can just find that sacred pause that we talk about. You know, just pausing, taking a breath, inclining the mind towards equanimity. May I accept things just as they are. May I accept things just as they are. A little mindfulness in the moment can be liberating when you find yourself, and when you can wake to the fact that you're pushing, grabbing, you know, thrashing around, you know, trying to control everything. If you can just awake, know what's happening. In that moment, the relationship has changed. You're much more able to relax and let go. And it all starts with this basic, simple mindfulness that you exercising over and over and changing and massaging your nervous system so that you're awake more of the time. And you see this, this universe that we've landed in, it's, it's just way too big to hold on to or control. But it's the perfect size for letting go. And thank you so much for your attention tonight. And so let's just sit for a moment. May I accept things just as they are. May I accept things just as they are. 